Now, I always felt that it could be resolved that she would have to be somewhere, that she couldn't have just disappeared like that. And the fact that was said that she'd jumped from the bridge, that wasn't convincing for me. So I, I just thought, well, she has to be somewhere. She can't just have disappeared. After the investigation into the Phillip Island murder of Beth Barnard on September 23, 1986, the police compiled all of their information into an inquest brief and presented it to the coroner. The following year, an inquest was held and the coroner found that Vivian Cameron contributed to the cause of death in Beth's murder. But given that Vivian had vanished, no one ever stood trial for Beth's murder. Once the inquest was complete, there was still one inquest remaining. It seems like the most obvious scenario in the Phillip Island murder was the accepted one. Husband and wife, Vivian and Fergus Cameron, argue over his affair with Beth Barnard. Vivian attacks Fergus, hospital visit, then she drives him to his sister Marnie's house. Vivian calls someone to come and mind the kids, then is not heard of again, if you discount the phone call to Glenda Frost the following morning at 10am. The police believe that Vivian Cameron was responsible for the death of Beth Barnard and have never wavered from this belief. They saw no problem with the brutality of the attack being carried out by a woman. To them, the letter A carved into Beth's chest was a clear indication that Vivian was branding Beth an adulteress, just like Hester Prynne in Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. Homicide detective Rory O'Connor didn't feel this scenario was impossible. Because a frenzied killing like that is what we'd expect of a woman who just who just had her whole life cave in on her, where the husband was having a an affair and he's thrown his hands up in the air and he went out of the house for the night. The only thing she could do was to try and seek revenge. And that's why I believe it was. I've heard stories about Vivian, how she was involved in this, she was involved in that. You know, nobody said a bad word about it. But it happens. It's happened before and it'll happen again. We all understand how murderous rage plays out. A person is provoked and they attack. But I've always wondered how long does murderous rage last? Because in this case, Vivian found out on the night of Monday the 22nd of September, 1986, just after 8pm, that Fergus had left work but had not come home. She suspected he'd gone to visit his girlfriend. She confronted him in a rage around 10pm, then drove him to the hospital, showing concern and, according to Fergus, made a threat against Beth but later apologised for it as they waited at the hospital. She stayed with her husband for a couple of hours while he was being treated. 
talked rationally to him, drove home, agreed to end the marriage, dropped him off at his sister's, waited another hour before calling Robin Dixon to collect the kids, then drove to Beth's in a murderous rage. Can you maintain that level of rage from 8pm till 3.30am the next morning? Seven and a half hours? Does murderous rage last for seven and a half hours? Vivian loved her little boys above everything else. In all those hours, in all that time she had to think, did she come to the conclusion that a starburst of murderous revenge on a 23-year-old woman would be worth losing everything for? Rory O'Connor doesn't find this hard to imagine. People will go to bed and then someone else will get up and say, this is, this is the only way out, I've got to get rid of it. Look, it's, it's hard, you know, it's hard to actually put it all together without physically knowing these people. I don't know what their personalities were like. You can only rely on what people say. You want to know? Did someone sit there and think about it for so long? What was going to happen to the actual family? Two kids? Was I, you know, this is my life here on the island? I don't know. Honestly, can't answer that one. I don't know either. I've always wondered about Marnie's assertion that Vivian told her if it wasn't Beth, it probably would have been someone else. Fergus was described as a charismatic man. Some say women were drawn to him. So why was Vivian's murderous rage directed toward Beth rather than her husband? Rory O'Connor has heard all this before. Look, I I know, I've spoken to a lot of residents on the island and they really don't think that Vivian was capable of doing this. It's just, it was never her nature. She was part of, uh, she was a a community member and uh, I I think she was well-liked by most people that... uh, that had anything to do with it. So it was completely foreign. This whole thing is completely foreign. And that's why you've got so many people on the island believing that, you know, that uh, she, she may not be responsible. Now, we can't, we can't say that she's never been, it's never been tried in court. It's never been tested. And that's the problem with the Phillip Island murder. It has never been tried in a court So even though the coroner declared that Vivian was responsible, a coroner's court is not the same thing as a trial. Having been a witness myself in a court case, there's a huge difference between giving a statement and having that statement challenged in court by lawyers trying to trip you up. P.S. In case you're wondering, they didn't. I remember the first time I read Fergus Cameron's statement It struck me that he had mentioned several incidents where Vivian attacked him. A few people I spoke to told me that of the two, it was him who had a bit of a temper, not her. In his statement, he describes himself in a passive role, while on several occasions his wife attacked him. I've pieced together all the occasions so that you can see the picture that emerges when Fergus Cameron talks about his wife to the police after Beth's murder. These are his words, not his voice. After the Christmas party at Beth's house. I arrived home shortly after five o'clock, hopped into bed and thought Vivian was asleep. She wasn't. 
and she immediately started attacking me. She punched me in the face to begin with, and I rolled over onto my stomach, and she punched me on my back, and she was crying, extremely distraught, wanting to know why I was so late. At the end of the shearing season. It culminated at the end of shearing, when everyone, including Beth, had gone home. Vivian became violent. We had all been drinking, including myself, and when we had gone up to the house, Vivian became violent with me over Beth. She said that Beth was a scheming little bitch, and in general, criticising her to the point of hatred. She was very disparaging as to my admiration for Beth, but did not, to my knowledge, accuse me of having an affair with her, but I think she assumed I was. Vivian also said she was annoyed that Beth didn't leave and go to Werribee four months before. During this argument, she punched me half a dozen to a dozen times around the face, arms and chest. And at the time, I was sitting on a stool in the back porch. The final attack on the night of the murder. Vivian followed me in. She pulled the plug out of the phone and screamed. Where have you been? I just said, I've been talking to Beth. She then raced at me with a glass of wine and screamed. I knew you were with that little bitch. I think she hit me with the wine glass, which broke on the left side of my head and cut my left ear. I turned my back away from her and she hit me two or three times with a broken glass. And on their arrival at the hospital. When we arrived to the hospital, Vivian parked outside and she was turning off the ignition. She turned to me and said, I'm just going to get the little bitch. So while her friends were describing her as quiet, considerate, lovely and caring, Vivian Cameron's husband painted a picture of a violent woman ready to attack him at any time her jealousy was triggered and at the same time painted himself as the husband who calmly took the blows. I don't know how a country inquest works. I do know that evidence was presented at Beth's inquest and witnesses were heard. Vivian's friend, Glenda Frost, was called as a witness and remembered it well. Glenda remembered seeing Vivian's sister Deirdre there. She also got the impression, rightly or wrongly, that some parts of Fergus Cameron's testimony were not heard in open court. Do you know um, Viv's sister was there, I'm sure, with her husband at that inquest? Because I looked at her and thought, gosh, she's the image of Viv. I think that the same sister and husband were at the inquest of Beth that I was called up to. They were sitting over outside and I could see the Camerons, you know, I mean, you couldn't mistake and they would have been aware. I just think the whole thing was, like, as I say in the court, he didn't, Fergie didn't want to be interviewed in public. And the judge said, well, the others have been new, will be, but the little they asked him wasn't the whole, you know, just little, they were outside for ages with a, a sort of a break and when Fergie came in they def- def- definitely wasn't the whole questioning that was done outside. And so Vivian Cameron vanished. No one, aside from Glenda Frost, has ever come forward to say they've had contact with her. The Cameron family were quick to mark her end when they held the memorial service for her just 24 days after she disappeared. 
The irony was that while Vivian's sister Deidre got to attend the memorial service and Beth's inquest, something would happen to stop her from attending Vivian's inquest a year later. The Cameron family were very keen to have Vivian declared officially dead. I've always wondered why. It's not a fast process. It can take up to seven years to get someone who's missing declared dead. At the time of Beth's murder, the family were in the process of getting the racetrack and the Grand Prix up and running. Detective Rory O'Connor wondered if the Grand Prix racetrack might have had something to do with the urgency. Well, that's just my opinion. That's just, you know, that's just one reason I could think of, you know, saying at the time. I mean, at the time they had 12 months, or probably wasn't even 12 months before the Australian Grand Prix was held at Phillip Island. Now, the actual track on Phillip Island was in Vivian's name too. And documents being signed had to be signed by Vivian too. Now, how they overcame all that, I don't know. On the 23rd of September 1987, the first anniversary of Beth's murder and the day his wife Vivian vanished, Fergus Cameron signed an affidavit with his solicitor in Melbourne in order to set the wheels in motion to have Vivian's probate settled. Now, I don't know whether the date was a coincidence or maybe Fergus Cameron had to wait exactly a year to start the probate, But when I saw this document, I wondered whether he had noted that it was the anniversary. On the front page of his affidavit, he wrote, I believe that the deceased died on the 23rd of September, 1986. In Vivian's last will and testament, made two years before she died, she left everything to Fergus. Taking into account a small family inheritance, a one-sixth share of the Cameron's Agribiz partnership, which had assets of land, and shares in the company Placetac, which was involved in starting up the Grand Prix racing circuit on Phillip Island, all up, Vivian's assets were valued at $190,000. While this doesn't sound like a lot these days, to give you a context for this, I bought my first house that same year in 1986 it cost $64,000. Of course, it's very common for a married couple to bequeath their assets to their partners in the event of their death. In my initial interview with Rory O'Connor, I asked him if Vivian Cameron had any life insurance on top of that. Uh, we no, no, we couldn't find any. We couldn't find any. Only the... The reason I asked was that when I had originally called the coroner's court seeking information on the case, the guy I spoke to asked if I was the one who'd called from South Australia. I said that wasn't me and he said, oh, I thought you might be calling back. I was immediately worried that perhaps another author was interested in writing about the case, but the guy said no, it was an insurance company. And I said, like someone calling from an insurance company to ask if she'd been declared dead yet. He thought it was. Now, I don't know if he was relying on memory or whether there was a notation in the file about the phone call, but it's left me wondering if there was an insurance company from South Australia. 
the sum total of Vivian Cameron's assets was $190,000. Was it possible that there was more? I asked Rory O'Connor whether the police had looked into life insurance. Might there have been some through the Grand Prix deal? Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to say. It may have been insurance to do with, um, you know, they might have all insured one another regarding uh, uh, even a rain out or something like that, the Grand Prix or something like that. So I, I don't think we found any life insurance. We asked for it, but uh, so you can't. I mean, it's physically impossible to check every insurance company to see it, you know. After Fergus Cameron lodged his affidavit on the first anniversary of Beth's murder and Vivian's disappearance, in the following days, Donald and Pam Cameron and Marnie and Anne Cairns signed their affidavits too, each ending their document with a version of I believe Vivian took her own life in the early hours of the morning on Tuesday, the 23rd of September, 1986. But what was the hurry to push for probate and for Vivian to be declared dead? According to another affidavit that Fergus Cameron filed in the Supreme Court on the 19th of November, 1987, the surviving family members wanted to sell off land. The legal document read that the remaining partners desire to sell approximately 10 acres of partnership land to an adjoining party. The price of 10,000 per acre has been negotiated, which represents a very advantageous price for the land as compared with its value, regarding it simply as farming land. I and other partners desire to proceed with such sale, but until a grant of representation of the deceased's estate is made, it would not be possible to obtain a registration of an application by surviving proprietor by the Registrar of Titles to enable the sale to proceed. Item 5 of the same affidavit is especially poignant. It says that the deceased left a will, a true copy of which is now produced and shown to me marked with the letter A. In July 1988, an inquest was held into the disappearance of Vivian Cameron. While it can take seven years for a missing person to be declared dead, this inquest wasn't even two years after Vivian Cameron went missing. Vivian's sister Deirdre and brother Keith had briefed a Queen's counsel to appear at Vivian's inquest. They wanted their sister represented in court and they wanted to hear the evidence against her. The QC travelled with Keith and Deirdre to the Corumburra Courthouse on the appointed day. Vivian's mother Marjorie by that stage was elderly and had decided not to attend. Deirdre, Keith and the QC got to court before the scheduled start time of 10am only to find that the inquest was already over. The coroner had made his finding. When I spoke to Deirdre years later, she told me that the family had made a formal complaint to the state coroner who had agreed with them that they had a right to be represented and present at their sister's inquest. He offered them a new inquest, but when Vivian's family weighed it up, they decided not to go ahead with it. Deirdre was worried about their mother. She told me, 
Mum had been through enough already and we thought, what would it achieve? So what was decided in the inquest that was over before it began? Here are the coroner's findings. I, Mr B.J. Ma, coroner, having investigated the death of Vivian Janice Cameron with inquest held at Corumburra on the 21st day of July 1988, find that the identity of the deceased was Vivian Janice Cameron and that the death occurred on the 23rd of September 1986 near the bridge which separates Phillip Island from the mainland in the following circumstances. During the night of the 22nd or the 23rd of September 1986, Elizabeth Barnard died from knife wounds in her chest and Vivian Janice Cameron has not been seen since 1am on the 23rd day of September 1986. On the night in question, it is believed that Vivian Janice Cameron was driving Toyota Land Cruiser, registered number CIL 809. This vehicle was found abandoned near the said bridge on the Phillip Island side of the bridge. Despite an intensive police search, no trace has been found of the said Vivian Janice Cameron with whom they wish to speak concerning the death of Elizabeth Barnard. Although her body has not been found, I am satisfied that she is dead and that she leapt from the bridge into the water, and I further find that the deceased contributed toward the cause of death. The deceased contributed toward the cause of death means that the coroner found Vivian Cameron died at her own hand. No one else was involved. The finding Vivian Janice Cameron has not been seen since 1am made it clear that the coroner accepted Fergus Cameron's story about he and Vivian arriving at Marnie's at 1am. I then said goodbye to Vivian and Marnie kissed her goodnight and Vivian left in a Holden sedan and I haven't seen her since. To the best of my recollection, she left about 1am on the Tuesday morning. It's interesting that even a cursory examination of Fergus Cameron's statement would find that he is mistaken about the 1am time. The following sentences are all contained on page 19 through 21 of his statement. I've edited them so that you can get a clear picture about why his 1am estimate is unlikely according to his own statement. Vivian was insistent that I stay in hospital overnight and we left and arrived home sometime around midnight. So they get home at midnight. When we arrived home, Marnie wanted to go home straight away and we asked her to stay and talk to us. Marnie had spent the last two hours minding the Cameron children. By this stage, her husband Ian, who had travelled there separately, had returned to their house up the road, leaving Marnie alone with the sleeping boys. Marnie's own statement isn't specific about how long she stayed and talked with them. She said, We then talked for a while and they agreed to resolve something about their future and told me not to worry, that they were okay. So let's say it would have been at least 15 minutes, maybe even half an hour, since the end of a marriage isn't something discussed quickly. So perhaps we are now looking at 12.15 to 12.30am. Marnie left and Vivian and I 
discussed our marriage for an hour and a half. An hour and a half? So that brings us to nearly 2am. She helped me pack a bag and talked about what I would need the next couple of days. And she drove down to Marnie's. Marnie's statement had them arriving at 2am. This is what she said. Vivian and Fergus arrived at about 2am. We spoke at the door. They told me that they had a long talk and that Vivian had decided to go to Melbourne on the following day and leave the boys with Fergus. Vivian had packed an overnight bag for Fergus. I gave her two Mogadon tablets in an envelope and told her to take one if she needed it. Vivian then left. And yet the coroner has specifically cited the mistaken time in Fergus Cameron's statement that Fergus's own statement contradicts. Vivian Janice Cameron has not been seen since 1am on the 23rd day of September 1986. It's a wonder such a discrepancy wasn't noticed. It would also seem the coroner took driver Wayne Hunt's vague description of seeing a car parked on Forest Avenue around 5am as fact, making it likely that Vivian Cameron jumped. Since it appeared the coroner seemed to base part of his verdict on it, you can't help but look back on this and wonder why Wayne Hunt's imprecise description of seeing a car near the bridge was given so much weight, while the words of Glenda Frost and her friend Pam and Isabel Adicote were given no weight at all. What did Rory O'Connor think of the coroner's verdict? He was going by all the evidence that was presented to him. Now, there's a lot of findings that uh, are altered later on, but uh, that was his finding from the evidence that we had at that particular stage. The coroner was so specific about being satisfied that she is dead and that she leapt from the bridge into the water... I asked Rory O'Connor why he might not have recorded an open finding instead, a finding which said that no one was really sure what happened to Vivian Cameron. No, not really. I've had open findings before. And open findings are really hard on families. And I suppose they are. A finding that Vivian Cameron was dead meant that her estate could be settled and everyone could move on with their lives. Police don't question coronial findings, at least not in front of crime writers they don't. But during my original research, even though Detective Alan McFadden was still in the job, when I interviewed him, he tried to be as frank as he could without crossing professional lines. Did he understand why Vivian was declared dead so quickly? Yeah, that's something you'd have to take up with the coroner. I really don't know. I can't answer that one. Did he understand the finding? Well, not really. Well, not really. It was something that the coroner decided and, you know, there are a lot of things that are decided which maybe police find a bit hard to follow. But again, I suppose, you know, we're not the person to make those decisions. Although we sometimes don't agree with these, some of these things that do happen, we must accept it because... I do think that if, if there was something that did come to light, we would certainly bring it to the notice of the coroner and the appropriate decision could be made by the appropriate authorities. 
So did Ellen McFadden believe Vivian jumped off the bridge? Years later, he would tell the TV show Sensing Murder that he checked the railings on the bridge on both sides and could see no disturbance in the salt crust that had formed on the rails. This would have been disturbed if someone straddled the rail to climb over it. Here are Ellen's words, courtesy of Sensing Murder. I don't believe that that uh, Vivian jumped off a bridge. That's my personal belief. I walked along the bridge and along the railing itself, there was a, a continual film, I guess you could call it, of fine particles of salt. There was no break in that salt to indicate that anyone had really jumped over the bridge. So if Alan McFadden didn't believe Vivian Cameron jumped off the bridge, did he believe she was dead? Well, I'd, I'd rather... I've got an open mind. I'm not saying she's dead. I'm not saying she's alive. All I'm saying is that we didn't find any evidence to say she was dead. I'm not speaking on behalf of the rest of the police force. I mean, there may be some evidence that did indicate that she is in fact dead, but I don't know where it is. But apparently hard evidence that someone is dead is not a requirement of the legal process that with the stroke of a pen can render someone deceased. Without a break in the salt crust on the bridge, without a note, without a witness, and despite a phone call to a friend called Glenda about a patchwork gift. Four months after the coroner declared Vivian Cameron dead, the surviving Camerons and Cairns families celebrated the reopening of the Phillip Island racetrack for the final round of the 1988 Swan Insurance International Series for motorcycles. A year after the inquest for Vivian Cameron, there was another attack on a woman on Phillip Island. Quite a few people mentioned it while I was researching this podcast. While it has no obvious connection to the Phillip Island murder, I suppose it's stuck in people's minds because it was connected to the Phillip Island racetrack and it was connected to the Phillip Island Council, both of which have connections to the Phillip Island case. Fergus's brother Donald Cameron was a long-serving councillor and of course the Cameron family owned the racetrack. The attack stuck in people's minds because it also showed that there was someone still on the island willing to violently assault a woman. The offender in this case was never caught. I tracked down the victim in the attack, a woman called Jane Maber. She told me what happened all those years ago on a dark Tuesday night on Phillip Island around a year after the inquest on Vivian Cameron. It was raining and it was about quarter past seven. At that stage, I lived out at the Lukey Museum, which is now the Grand Prix track. To get into the whole area, there were two big wire gates that I locked every night and reopened in the morning. And I was heading off to council. I was in local government. And I was heading off to our Tuesday night meeting and got out to unlock the the gate. I'd unlocked it, actually, when I was just 
punched in the face and knocked her to the ground. I'm just so thankful I had that big square torch in my hand. If I'd had an ordinary one, I wouldn't have been able to hit him. Um, but that's actually how I, I got away. I smashed him over the head uh, with that big heavy torch. I jumped in the car and as I drove off, he was curled up on the road like in a ball. I just flew into the council chambers and they, I think they were all a bit shocked with, you know, I was muddy, um, I was bleeding, my dress was torn. Apparently I was talking incoherently and one of the other councillors, Steve, he, um, he took me aside and then took me to the police station and they took me to the hospital where I was treated for shock abrasions. Jane feels sure that when she smashed her torch into her attacker's head, she would have caused some damage. It certainly knocked the man to the ground and she could see blood. And because it was so pitch black, I couldn't see anything of him that... And that's always frustrated me that there wasn't something where I could have said, well, it was this person, I think. The weight of that torch, he would have had to have gone somewhere to get medical assistance um, because I could see the blood pouring out of his head. I don't think I knocked him out because I could see him, I could see, he was virtually curled up in a ball, but I could see him actually moving. And he, he had one hand on his head and I could see the blood. In the many conversations I've had with Jane about the attack, I get the feeling a small part of her wishes that she had taken a moment to roll the man over or try and shine a torch in his face to see who he was. But her fight or flight mode kicked in and once she did the fight bit, the flight bit took over. Jane fled to her car and sped off. As um, one of the police said, as vicious as that attack was on me, it actually could have been uh, worse. I could have been raped, I could have been murdered. You always felt that, didn't you? That, yeah. That this could have been a fatal attack? Yeah, yeah. The Phillip Island case was in 86. That one woman is brutally murdered and one woman is missing. Did you ever kind of link that in your mind at all? Yeah, but I could never work out why I was putting that link. In all the years... I'd been on the island. There'd never been anything like this. Jane Maber lived at the Phillip Island racetrack. She worked at the Lukey Museum and there was a house adjacent to the museum that was empty and when Jane needed a place to stay, the Lukey family let her stay there. The museum celebrated Len Lukey's racing career and the most prized exhibit was his green racing car. The museum has since been closed. One reason Jane Maber may have felt a connection between her assault and the Phillip Island murder was that she was a friend of Vivian Cameron's. She lived at the racetrack. She knew Fergus from when her kids were at school with the Cameron kids. She was on the council with Donald Cameron. She knew these people. And on that cold Tuesday night at the gates of the Cameron's racetrack, she experienced what she is sure would have been a murderous attack if she hadn't used her big torch 
to whack the assailant over the head. How does Jane Maber remember Vivian Cameron? She was one of the loveliest ladies I think I've ever known in my life. We were very close at the school. All our kids were the same age and it was a very close community, the Cowes Primary School, and all of us mums, you know, we tended to move together and so everyone got to know each other really, really well. But she had a gentle side to her and a quietness about her. Like, I was always loud. Viv was this quiet, gentle person. Look, I don't know. Maybe you can become a totally different person if you find out, um, you know, what her husband had been doing. What impact did Jane think an unfaithful husband might have had on Vivian? Yeah, I I, I believe she knew. Mm. And that probably would have broke her because they were a very well-known, very well-respected family. And Viv's um, brother-in-law, he was actually on council with me. So that was Donald Cameron? Yeah. And what was he like? A a real gentleman. Just a really lovely man. Jane Maber would love to access the police file on the investigation, but she can't recall the date of the attack. Under Freedom of Information, to get the record of the investigation... She needs the exact date. She feels sure that the attack would have been entered into the council minutes. She asked one of her former council colleagues on the island, but he was unwilling to help. She has an undated cutout of a newspaper article by local journalist Richard Schmeisel, headed, Councillor Assaulted Attacks Sparks Large Manhunt. In the article... Jane's age is given as 39, so it must have been between the 30th of June 1989 and the 1st of July 1990. It was a Tuesday night and dark at 7.15, so that meant it must have been outside of daylight savings, which means a rainy Tuesday night between July and late October 1989 or a rainy Tuesday night between late March and late June 1990. Just like the Phillip Island case, Jane Maber's attack leaves more questions than it answers. She has a suspicion about who attacked her, with nothing except for a gut feeling to back it up. I just hope one day someone will come up with something and this will all make sense. I think we all do, Jane. (laughs) That's what we all want from this podcast, that we want it to make more sense than what it does. On the next episode of The Vanishing of Vivian Cameron. You know, so it was definitely her, and that was at 10 o'clock in the morning on on the Tuesday. The unresolved feeling about the whole thing that happened that night. It's not an easy thing. It'll, it'll never go away. It'll always be in our memory.